You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. On this week's show, we're going to be looking at some of the psychology behind succession and business transitions. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ali Taylor from Orange Kiwi over in California. Um, So firstly, Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, And I think it's worth um, just mentioning that the reason we're talking is you, you published a uh, white paper, and I think I actually saw a copy of your dissertation for your PhD, and it piqued my interest because um, frequently when I deal with uh, family business owners in, in particular, um, there's a lot of psychological and emotional aspects happening in the background that if we don't start to um, recognize and appreciate can lead to um, frustrations further down the line, particularly around succession. Um, and I guess the, the purpose of today's show is to explore those in a little bit more detail. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of it, could, could you just introduce yourself to the audience to explain sort of how you've come to be doing what you're doing now? Sure, Russ, I'd be happy to. Um, so my partner and I um, started Orange Kiwi as a general management consulting company. I was born and raised in Orange County, California, and he's from New Zealand, so Orange Kiwi. Fantastic. That's how the name came to be. And what we ended up doing is working with um, a lot of mid-market family businesses that were either in crisis or struggling or about to go through a succession. And no no matter what the challenge was, at the end of the day, Change happened best when we attended to the psychological needs of the owner, owners, and their family members and management teams. Um, in the low to mid-market, as you know, Russ, who the owner is and how they're, well, you use the term wired to describe their personality, uh-huh. really translates into the business and creates um, unique strengths and unique challenges. As general management consultants, we had an appreciation of some of that from the technical business and money side, but what we were missing was a really good, rigorous, research-based understanding of the psychological dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to get my PhD to understand the psychology of middle market business owners and how it impacts their business. Fantastic. And as I mentioned, you, you, um, completed your PhD. So firstly, congratulations on that. Um, and published a white paper that explores how to help business owners to beat the transition odds. Um, so what were your findings within that process? Yeah, so the research was really intriguing. Um, there's a certain set of personality characteristics that are inherent to owners that are successful in the middle market. So globally, the vast majority, up to 96% of businesses fail to scale above the equivalent of 1 million US dollars. So that means only 4% get over that mark. It's those businesses that actually have to engage in some type of succession transition. 
And what we found is those personality characteristics, a high need for goal achievement, high innovativeness. They're some of the most amazing creative people. Um, risk-taking propensity, tolerance for ambiguity, and need for control, those, those characteristics that make them successful impinge upon their ability to successfully transition. So sometimes they struggle to scale because they're not developing those characteristics and strengths with, at levels of increased complexity. Oh, and sometimes they can't sell or, or exit. And, and what it, those strengths lead to is two behaviors. And that's what the research identified. It's a high need for significance and something called entrepreneurial role identity fusion. Uh-huh. That's the real crux of the issue. Yeah, and, and I see that in, in my day job in that um, the, the, the misconception, I think, with, with some of the succession is that it, it, it is an end day where that's it, your role ends. <laughs> and uh, you, you used to be, you know, John or Julie, the, the CEO or the, the MD, uh, and now you're just John and Julie and, and you have no purpose in life. And I think what your study highlights is that there there are these um, character traits that um, can be observed in people that that provide evidence that this is the case and that, that it's not an unusual thing for people to be feeling the way that they're feeling when it comes to a, a particular point in transition. Right, spot on. So my research actually piggied off, to your point, something that uh, an author by the name of Bo Burlingham uh-huh. um, discovered. So he wrote, he, he writes for Forbes and Inc. And he wrote several books, The Great Game of Business, Small Giants. The one that hit home for me and my research and what you experience every day is that owners have to go through four very distinct phases of transition. And there are psychological reasons behind this. The first phase is called the exploratory phase, where they're asking all those existential questions about meaning and purpose and values and what they do and don't want. Then that information informs the strategic phase, where they're figuring out the tactics and behind the getting to the goals that they want to achieve, uh-huh. what type of, what type of um, transition they want. Are they going to sell it? Are they, is it going to be a succession? Who's going to take over? How are they going to take over? All the planning that goes into making that successful. And then the third phase is execution. And that's where the actual transaction takes place. And the owner legally lets go of their role. And then they move into a phase that we call adjustment. Bo calls it transition. Mm-hmm. But all four phases are really a transition. Yeah. And what you're describing is owners getting stuck in that last phase of adjustment. And the research and Bo's qualitative work with owners proves that it's the exploratory phase that either makes or breaks that process. Mm-hmm. And what I find really interesting about that as well, and I'm I'm tarring a lot of advisors with the same brush here, and I, I know there are very good advisors out there uh, and consultancies that, that work in a in a different way, but a lot of people tend to focus on the kind of technical and financial aspects of a transition, and kind of leave the emotional and psychological aspects to one side because either they don't feel qualified to talk about it or. An accountant, for example, might not feel that it's their role to be able to 
to step in and go, well, have you considered this um, character trait you may have that will make this difficult because that they're not qualified in, in, in doing so. But, but it's really important to address those, isn't it, in this transition period? Absolutely. And, and to your point, those advisors, it's out, the exploratory and adjustment phases are outside their skill set. Mm. They're not economically incentivized. They're, they're, not, they're not trained to engage owners in that way. But they are, the, they are perfectly suited to, to doing it if they, if they can um, start to ask some just basic conversational questions that aren't tied to their money or their mm-hmm. business strategy. Yeah. And rec- if, if they do that by recognizing that, these traits aren't going to go away when the owner exits. Uh-huh. So, so instead of talking about where you're going to invest the proceeds from your sale, talk about wh- what passions are they going to carry forward? Some of them, it's mentoring other young business owners. Others, it's starting a business. A lot of entrepreneurs, it's amazing. Well, exit, say they never want to own again. And within six months, they've started a new business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that sense of purpose and identity is really important um, as well, because particularly, I don't know whether whether the study looked at this, but but in the the kind of founding generation where um, first generation of of perhaps a family business have um, set the business up, it's their vision, it's their passion, it becomes like their right arm. Asking somebody to let go of that is a really difficult thing to do. And they might be getting pressure from other family members. They might be getting pressure from um, their spouse, for example. And again, at what stage do do we start talking to people about these character traits? When should we start these discussions? As soon as you meet them. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. To make time a competitive advantage for a, a low to mid market business owner, these if this takes years, not months, to do really well. Not that somebody can't. There are people who can go through the process with very little emotional psychological challenge. Uh-huh. But other people, it takes it takes years of trying to sort out um, what they really want. They operate from their strengths, and they don't even know what makes them successful. Yeah. And it's driven out of psychological needs to satiate certain drivers. So then everybody, no matter who you are, you have three motivational needs that must be satiated. One is a need for relatedness, to care for people and to be cared for by people. One is a need for competency, to feel effective in the world. And one is a need for autonomy or independence, to be able to exercise your free will and choice. Now, for business owners, they live out these motivations through their role as owner. All three of them tend to be satiated there. So when that goes away, they, they experience what we call cognitive dissonance or psychological stress. Okay. Those needs are no longer being met. So the sooner you start talking about them and helping them discover this reality and find new ways of doing that, the better off they are. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and if we could go back to those character traits sure. and, and explore those in a little bit more um, detail. The, the, frequently we are 
talking with family businesses and we might be talking to um, the next gen as an example who are kind of itching to, to get their hands on the business and, and get involved. Yeah. And they can't understand why it is that mum or dad are, uh, are still hanging around, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, but, but if we explore some of those character traits and, and what they might look like to people, it might give next gen an, an insight as to, okay, so that's why, that might be why mum and dad are, are doing what they're doing. Oh, yeah. When we work with family, matter of fact, I was with um, a mid-market family business yesterday in Southern California where um, dad came from Japan, amazing, started a business with nothing, literally came with nothing to the States, built a really successful business. He's nearing 80, so he handed it over to his daughters. One works in the business, one doesn't. He gave them ownership. They bought it out, but they have two different types of stock here in States. I'm not sure if that's true in the, in the UK, but um, they have um, non-voting stock and voting stock. Uh-huh. And yep. when they did it. They structured this deal. They wanted to honor dad and they had a lot of their family values tied up in it. So in trying to honor dad, he retained all the control and only 1% of ownership. All right. Right. And so he's, and, and just that little 1% of ownership um, is giving him the ability to feel like he's still an owner. So when he walks into a room, the r- world still responds to him as, he's, as if he's the owner of this business. Yeah. So that allows him to satiate some of those needs. Now, the downside is it wasn't done very intentionally or very well. And so now this family is really struggling with relationship issues. So. Mm. How do we help them? We don't necessarily say, well, your dad's got this high need for control and he's got a need for goal achievement and he's got all these motivational drivers. What we do is we try to help the the successor generation, in this case, to honor the family values and to go to explore their own needs because you can't forget about the the successor generation's needs. They, Mm. They don't you know, being hamstrung in your dad's shadow is not going to allow you to be successful. Yeah. So helping, helping them identify their needs, helping, you know, the founding generation where these traits tend to be, you know, very prominent, um, helping them come to grips with seeing their children differently. Stop, you know, literally, they have to start to look at their children as competent adults. Uh-huh. No longer children who need to be parented and guided and their hands held. They need to, the founding generation has to lean into their ability to tolerate ambiguity and risk. And so helping them live into that as they let go and and truly transition, not just um, control, but psychological empowerment of their children to own the business. Mm. And that's a process. And helping them go through this dance, I think advisors tend to go to the mechanics of it and they get the emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they they can come to that and go, well, what would solve this is a share structure of X or a family, (laughs) family constitution of Y rather than actually understanding for those to be effective. Everybody has to buy into that. Absolutely. And so it's the process that is the most important part of that. And it's fit. Sorry, go on. A family constitution can be the perfect tool to solve that issue, but it's the process of getting there. Yeah. And it's not something that can be knocked up in an afternoon, is it? <laughs> it's, you, 
you know, you can't go, here's one I copy and pasted from, from the last family um, we right. worked with. It, it's got to be something that is um, organic and, and has been produced by the family, perhaps with guidance, but, but certainly by the family. Absolutely. And it's, it's the, the working sessions, how the actual time with the family is structured that can be so powerful for helping them move through this. Mm. And that's where if advisors can stop, start to look outside the silo of their own discipline mm-hmm. and look at crafting opportunities for the family to, oh, for example, tell their story. Instead of going right to what's the problem, let's solve the problem, start with the family creating a timeline together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, we do an exercise where they all, all can, we have five different categories, you know, major events, people that were impacted, successes, failures, dreams, just different categories. And they use post-its and they write one idea per post-it, as many as they want for each of those categories across a given span of time, usually from the start of the business to the present day. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets to tell their story through post-it. So it happens pretty quickly. And then we start to you know, unpack it. And people start to say, like, uh, we were with a family the other day, and the dad got his pilot's license. He, he built a $100 million annual revenue, that's U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. business, construction business, barely, barely graduated high school, never went to college. Wow. So had a sense of inadequacy. Yeah. But he got his pilot's license. Well, the family never realized how important that was to him. And so mm. when they refused to fly with him, hearing his story about why that was important healed that rift. Right. In a way that couldn't have been done if he would just try to attack the problem directly. Yeah. That's, That's a, a fantastic example. And that doesn't take psychological skill. No. No, it, it takes a step back, doesn't it? And like you say, stop concentrating on necessarily what's, what's right for your um, billing hours or whatever the, the, the corporate structure might be uh, and focus on what's important to the family. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, the, the other question I've got linked to that is well, your studies obviously identified that there's these character traits that lead to behaviours. Yes. When you're working with business families, do, do you recognize those character stra- traits straight away? Do, do you kind of, you, you sit down and talk to somebody and it becomes very clear as to which of these character traits they are particularly um, strong in? Yeah, so the character traits um, you can see, um, often founders, they're easier to pick out. But even successor generations, they'll express all five of them. So you can talk with them about those characteristic traits, um, personality characteristics. Mm-hmm. So let me break it down a little bit differently for you, Russ, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Okay. So there's three components to it. One, there's personality characteristics. And those are those five that we talked about. Um, tolerance for ambiguity, risk-taking propensity, um, need for control, need for goal achievement, and innovativeness, those are personality characteristics. Uh Entrepreneurs use those to satiate motivational drivers. Those are those psychological needs that they have. And that's the autonomy, relatedness, and competency that we talked about. 
because those drivers are satiated largely through these personality characteristics and through the business, it leads to two predictable behaviors. The behaviors are a need for significance and an entrepreneurial role identity fusion. The Mm -hmm. power, so the power behind this is that you can measure behaviors. And while you're not going to change personality characteristics, those are literally hardwired into a person. It's much more difficult to change. Uh-huh. You can measure and change behavior. So what we do and advisors that we work with do is um, the research um, resulted in the development of a psychometric, a tool that literally measures the level of entrepreneurial role identity fusion and significance, as well as their openness to change. By understanding where they are on a, a grid, you're able to target your interventions much more precisely. Okay. So that makes sense. In terms of helping everybody to understand um, what behaviors may need to be changed in order to, to help facilitate the uh, successional transition, depending on how you want to, to word it. Um, but how, how easy or difficult is it to start having those conversations with somebody who um, may have founded the business? And, and in the, the example of the chap who got his pilot's, pilot's license, yeah. if he's going through school being what society would deem an underachiever, did, barely graduated college, um, and then has created this hugely successful business, for, for anybody to go in and say, well, now's, now's the time to consider a transition, you're asking that person to give up predominantly their entire identity and their proof to the world that they aren't this failure as they would have been deemed leaving um, college perhaps. You're spot on. That's very insightful, Russ. So um, it's a tough, it can be a tough conversation to have. Mm. In the case of that pilot, Um, His sons were raised in the business. Right. And so the sons really got to a point where they said, okay, dad, we've helped do X, Y, and Z. You made sure we went to college. You made sure we were more than capable. Here's what we'd like to do. And oh, by the way, mom was an equal partner in that business. Right. Mom ran a lot of the operations and mom was, mom was ready for the next season. Um, So, the most, the, in this case, there's a very trusted advisor in the middle who, because trust was really present and established over years, could have that conversation in a way that was safe for the owner. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is the advisors, before you can have that, or family members, before you can have that, you have to earn the right to be heard. Yeah. Second... Um, you have to do it in a way that um, approaches the owner in a way that they're going to be accepting of. So what do I mean by that? In this case, that owner, his style was, um, he, he's driven type A. He needed a type A approach. You had to hit him directly. Uh-huh. We've worked with other owners where you, it really takes some time for them to work up. They're, they're a little bit more reflective and they need time to think about it. So we had to, you have to develop a number of scenarios and give them choices and help and start succession planning long before you're talking about their exit. Uh-huh. 
And so it just, so, so Russ, the best answer I can give you is first establish trust and then tailor your approach to the needs of the owner. Fantastic. And I guess in in terms of um, each family business being um, unique in in the sense that they're the only family dealing with their, uh, only business dealing with their family, there needs to be a judgment call in there that it's not a case of, say, if I'm the the son of the founder going in and and chucking the retirement papers on the table and saying, right, time's up. (laughs) It's my my go now. Right. Those usually don't work, even when they're built in. If the timelines are, are artificial and the, the exploratory work hasn't been done, they tend to be tick, what I call ticking time bombs. Yeah. Right? So diffusing that bomb requires skill and care and caution. Mm, I agree. And, and I think one of the other aspects to this as well is that although a business owner or a founder may not be wanting to talk about their own succession, that the nature of life is that, that something's going to trigger it at some point and to be in control of that. If we're looking at some of those um, character um, traits where, where control might be important, having control over what happens rather than leaving it up to, to what happens after you. So, so in this case, it could be death or serious illness that that, that would also be a, a definition of success in my view, that at least it's being addressed. It's not something that's been left to chance. Yeah, I agree with you. And and the vast majority of people would say if you if you design a plan, you'll you'll maintain control. Mm. The challenges for these owners is their high tolerance for ambiguity yeah. and their their need for innovativeness. So mm-hmm. that's the ability to find just in time solutions. Yep. Oftentimes those two traits kind of muddle with control and so it gets a little bit distorted in their mind that they don't need a plan to stay in control Uh and so helping that so if we go after it directly and say but you'll have more control they're looking at you like i already have control what's your problem yeah Yeah. (laughs) so i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily make that argument and there's there's no one best way to do it Mm. For owners, it's helping, help just listening, asking questions. There's going to be a pain point that they're experiencing. And if you can, if you can identify a pain point early on and start to help them fix that issue, address that, you earn the right to be heard and you actually get to start having these conversations in the context of that problem. So let me yeah. give you an example. We have a business that... Um, has a number of locations. It's pretty large. It's in the Midwest. It's um, third generation. So now we're on a second generation looking to transition at some point to third. So mm-hmm. now we're at what we call like the cousin cohort, which yep. gets really complex. They're a ways away from the transition. There's one, one of the siblings that owns and operates it is, is the more dominant personality um, if we went after that in terms of their need for control, we'd be in huge trouble. But he also has a high need to serve his siblings, and there's one that's really struggling. Right. So we get to help. We get to come in and help figure out what's going on in the culture that's not allowing this person to thrive. And then how do we talk about how do we how do we use that to open the broader conversation 
about succession and transition and the right people in the right roles and how do you bring up the next generation? Uh-huh. So, so the takeaway from that is, again, back to building trust and you do it by solving whatever presenting challenge they have. Yeah. And so for a wealth manager what, or a financial advisor, someone in that position, what I love is you have continuity of relationship before, during, and after a transition. Uh-huh. If you're starting to listen for some of those opportunities and you create an ecosystem around you of skilled third-party experts that you can put in place that you start to work together as a team, you serve the family much better. So the wealth advisor doesn't have to solve that problem. They need to have a resource they can put in play to help solve that problem. Yep. I agree, and that that is the approach we uh, we take here. So um, it's nice to hear that that uh, we're, we're probably doing it right. <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs> uh, but back again to um, one of the the character traits you mentioned, which is the, the propensity for risk. Yes. Um, that that probably works quite heavily against, like we were saying before, about the um, the control and, and the the ambiguity in that. A lot of business owners, perhaps, uh, again, sweeping generalization, would, yeah. would probably say they're immortal and th- these things aren't going to happen to me because I'm in control. And um, <laughs> the, the truth is that, that they don't, but it's easier to say that here than it is to perhaps say that to their face. Uh, I think that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely a range um, as, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Sumner Redstone. Um, he's 92 years old. His, um, he was owned um, CBS, or I'm sorry, Viacom. Okay. And uh, a, big, a big entertainment company here. And his succession plan was that he wasn't going to die. Right. <laughs> right. Which, which possibly makes sense when you write it down, but then t- time may prove that wrong. So I proves that wrong. And then a court action, because, you know, shareholders don't like that very much. So court yeah. action happens, you know, family has to struggle with that. It's just messy. Mm. Um, and for some order owners, like there's about, you know, about 2.1% of the, the population that are quite likely they're going to die at their desk and they're, they're going to leave things completely unprepared. Yeah. Um, like the Sumners of the world. Mm. Um, there are, there are, um, there are, it's be, it's beyond just this risk taking propensity though. That's, uh. that's really more tied to their identity. The risk taking side of it is, is very interesting with entrepreneurs and with business owners. They're, they're some of the most risk averse people uh. you'll ever meet. They're not going to go to Vegas and gamble everything on the roulette table. Yep. Um, it's how they view risk. So to your point, as long as they feel like they're in control and can control the outcome, uh-huh. they're unlikely to view that as a risk that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that taps into to something, again, we see on a regular basis where they 
in our in our eyes are risk takers in terms of the the way they approach their business but when it comes to um, we help people create financial independence outside of, of the business so that often involves investment in things like stock markets etc yeah. uh, and when it comes to that their their attitude to risk there is like you say very risk averse rather than um, being uh, the risk takers that we perhaps see them as as entrepreneurial Right. Absolutely. And once you get, once you get inside the mind of the owner, it makes perfect sense. It's mm. because they no longer control the money. They have to trust somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm interested in, in where um, fear plays any role in um, any, any of these sort of psychological or emotional issues, because a lot of times when we're speaking to, to people and particularly around the, the transition to, to next generation, there appears to be a fear of either the next generation are going to be more successful mm. or, or they're going to fail. And either way, that, that fear is, is tangible and is something that is not necessarily spoken about because of the, the people in the room, but it is something that is is it appears to be there. Is that something you come across? Yeah. So the psychological mechanism behind it is, is definitely a fear of loss. It's a, it's a threat to one of those motivational drivers. Uh -huh. So to your point, it's a, what they're experiencing and they don't even know it. It's happening what we call below the surface uh -huh. so at the, at the pre or subconscious level they're experiencing this threat to where am I going to get this need for competency met? Yeah. And will I like, Oh gosh, if, if Jim, my son, Jim is more successful than me. Was, was, did I fail? Did I not? Yeah. Yeah. For some people that really is very powerful. And so self, you start to see that manifest as self-sabotage and other things because they can't articulate it. They don't even know what's happening to them. Hmm. Yeah. And as you say, it's below the surface. It's not something that is, is, or you can recognize immediately and go, okay, I need to stop doing that. It, it is completely below the surface. Right. And that's where advisors, um, financial advisors are really can, I, I know a couple that are really good at this, Russ. I'm sure you're probably very good at this. Um, advice, financial advisors who take the time to ask reflective questions. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can't ask those questions because everybody's in the room, but when you get, your client, your owner client alone. And you say, you know, I, I noticed this was, was going on. What was that like for you? Yeah. And if you have enough trust, they'll start to unpack it and you can just, you can't, don't try to solve their problem. Mm. Just explore their thoughts and feelings. Just let mm. them ask open ended questions and they'll start talking to you. And it's often something that they've never been asked about before because, um, uh, again, particularly with with founders of the business, it, it's not something that they're used to necessarily talking about, but but certainly not being asked or, or challenged on. Right, and there's very few safe places in their life for them to do that. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Um, so, so in terms of the, the work that you do with uh, the families that that you work with. Um, again, there's another paper that's on your website, which we'll link up in the show notes that introduces the M3 framework. Um, yeah. Could you give us a little bit more on that? Sure. So what the M3 framework recognizes is 
that most technical advice is targeted at the business and the money. That's where, as we talked about earlier in the show, um, that's where most professionals are economically motivated. Uh But the key to transition success really happens at the self level. So the M3 framework is built on those three dimensions, my business, my money, and myself. And there's 22 variables that surround those three dimensions that we explore with our clients to help them identify what they want for what we call their mom, Uh money, ownership, and management of the business. Uh And that that serves as the foundation for exploration and allows us then to have a really clear understanding of what we need to do to build a strategy that will serve that owner well, whether they're trying to scale their business, engage in the sale of their business, or engage in succession. It's any type of significant transition. Fantastic. And you again, we'll link it up in the show notes, but when, when you break down those 22 um, uh, elements to it, um, that there's obviously detail in there on, on what each, which each of those um, factor. And I'm presuming some will have more significance for others than, uh, than, than others. Yes, absolutely. So the, the eight in the self dimension are, are really, really critical. And those are the ones that are often missed. Wow. Um, things like values and relationships and legacy and just aspects of you know, motivations, aspects of who that owner is that aren't even accounted for in wow. the process. Yeah. And it goes back, as you were saying, it goes back to what we were saying about um, the the technical and financial aspects are, are very typically covered, but very rarely, um, if you ignore the emotional and, and the, in your M3 model, the myself elements to it, it, it's just not effective at all. Right. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, in terms of any advice that you would give to somebody who is looking to consider their own succession plan or transition, or or even to somebody who's listening to this saying, actually that you're describing my parents, (laughs) what advice would you give to them to, to start those conversations? Um, Well, I always say, start with you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, so let's say it is that example you gave of the, the kids wanting to have the conversation with the parents. We need to examine your motivations, your goals. So you start, you know, take that M3 framework, start with the self, work it out for you and have the experience first and be ruthlessly mm-hmm. honest with yourself. And then once you do that, you get to share with your parents what that experience was like and invite them to, into something you've already done without pressure mm-hmm. You make it about you, not about your parents, and you leave it open-ended. If you go to them and say, hey, I've got this brilliant solution. We're going to do this. You're out in six months. The whole thing is sunk. <laughs> and I can imagine that happening. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And if it's the other way around, a lot of times parents, you know, the owners, they're most comfortable starting with their business. Mm-hmm. because it's something that they can control. It's something objective. It's about them, but it's not about them. So we'll start there and look at the eight dimensions of organizational health and capacity and, and talk about their hopes and dreams and visions for the future. That circles back around to legacy, which is in the self and money dimension. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. And then we'll pick out that variable and we'll work backwards through the variables in a way that is nonlinear, but follows the owner's psychological journey. So they, they literally let you know when they're ready for the next block. Fantastic. Um, we've obviously covered uh, an awful lot in here, um, which I am fairly certain will be um, getting a lot of interest in terms of, of reading more. So where, where can our audience find out more about you and, and in particular um, the, the work that you've done? Sure. So all the web, um, all the papers that you referred to are on our website and it's orangekiwiLLC.com. Fantastic. Uh, and I, I've spent some time on the site. It's, it's a great site. It's very engaging. Um, and the links in there to the papers are, are very obvious. So um, it, it's a great place to start. Um, and as I say, we've covered an awful lot. And I, I think um, that the topic is one that we could talk about for um, for a long, long time to, to, to get to the um, sort of crux of it. Um, but but I think for today's show, we've, we've covered what we aim to, to set out to cover. So thank you very much for your time, um, Ali, and your insights. Um, and I recommend to our listeners to, to go and check out the um, white paper because there's an awful lot of interesting and um, eye-opening stuff in there. Oh, thanks, Russ. I really appreciate the work that you're doing as well. It serves owners really yeah. well. Uh, that, that's all right. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fanbizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.